Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to my very excellent colleague, Dr. Elizabeth Kramer, also from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre here at the University of Sydney. Liz is the author of The Candidate's Dilemma, Anti-Corruptionism and Money Politics in Indonesian Election Campaigns, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. The Candidate's Dilemma provides a fascinating insight into the experiences of three candidates for the national legislature who have demonstrated a commitment to the fight against corruption in a system where not only pork barrelling but also direct cash payments are an integral part of the electoral campaigning. It follows these three candidates on the campaign trail, detailing and analysing their attempts to maintain an anti-corruption stance in the face of the demands of power brokers and individual voters. The Candidate's Dilemma addresses three interrelated questions, namely, how have changes in the political system after Indonesia's authoritarian system of government crumbled affected the way that candidates campaign? Why do some candidates choose to adopt an anti-corruption stance in a system that is so clearly underwritten by money politics? And, most importantly, how do self-identified anti-corruption candidates negotiate the pressure to engage in money politics when on the campaign trail? Welcome, Liz. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Liz, I'd like to start by asking what sparked your interest in Indonesian election campaigns. Thanks, Michelle. It's always good to start at the very beginning. So my personal interest in election campaigns pretty much goes back to my own heritage. So I'm half Indonesian and I grew up in Indonesia until I was a teenager. And Indonesian politics has always been in the back of my mind, I suppose, because I was a teenager in 1998 when the transition happened and Suharto resigned in Indonesia. And I had, you know, friends and family who were part of that event in Indonesia. So I've always been interested in politics, broadly speaking. But to get to your question about elections in particular, I think elections generally are just fascinating because they're a confluence of so many different agendas and issues and people trying to assert power, trying to get power. And, you know, the processes and the strategies around that are just really interesting to me. So I guess that's where my interest in Indonesian elections comes from. In The Candidate's Dilemma, there are two ideas or concepts that really frame the core problematic. On the one hand is money politics, and on the other is anti-corruptionism. Anti-corruptionism seems to be a fairly straightforward concept, but what exactly do you mean by it? 
Yeah, anti-corruptionism is an interesting term. It's actually been used by other scholars before, but I sort of take it in a a bit of a different direction in the book. So for me, anti-corruptionism is very much about using the language and rhetoric around fighting corruption, eradicating corruption, being generally against corruption, and mobilizing that discourse within a campaign for the purposes of persuasion. So it's essentially the use of of anti-corruption ideas as a political discourse within a campaign. Okay, so let's turn now to what you describe as the chicken and egg conundrum of money politics, namely whether money politics involves vote buying or vote selling. Can you explain why this question is so fundamental to the experience of anti-corruption campaigns and the candidates you followed and why did it remain so unresolved? Hmm. I think when thinking about this chicken and egg conundrum, we actually need to take a bit of a step back because it's not just the individuals who are involved in campaigns and in elections who are thinking about this issue, but it's actually a an issue that's preoccupied political scientists who've studied Indonesia and other similar contexts for a very long time. So I think it's good to sort of frame the discussion in terms of, you know, how it fits into ongoing debates and understandings about what happens in Indonesian elections. But for the anti-corruption candidates that I followed, it's really interesting to look at this chicken and egg conundrum because from their point of view, it is very clear that money politics and vote buying is expected of them. So when they plan their campaigns, they're thinking about vote buying either as something that they need to avoid and counter or something that they need to deal with and incorporate into their campaigns. So I think it's a really interesting way of framing the dilemma because they clearly see it as something that's expected of them. Now, on the other hand, when we look at the context of Indonesian elections and the way that voters engage with candidates, with political parties, with the electoral system, broadly speaking, the question of how money politics and how vote buying plays into their decision making is another part of this puzzle. So that's where this chicken and egg conundrum really comes from. And for them, it's really interesting to think about the expectations that they have of candidates and what they assume candidates are going to do and how they react to different strategies that candidates come up with. So I think that's why this chicken and egg conundrum is so interesting and why it's preoccupied so many academics for decades. So you've mentioned political parties there. Before we dive further into the experience of the candidates, can you tell us a bit about the context of the 2014 national elections? Yeah, the 2014 elections were interesting for a number of reasons. I think probably one of the main ones was that the previous president, Cicillo Bambangudiono, was stepping down, obviously, unable to run because he'd done his two terms. So that really opened up the space for political parties to assert their dominance within the legislature, especially the national legislature, and to give themselves the best opportunity possible to nominate their presidential candidate. So that's why the 2014 elections were so pivotal for political parties. 
Now, when it comes to individual candidates who are representing those parties, I think the 2014 national legislative elections followed a lot of the trends that began to take hold in 2009, in particular the open party list system that was introduced in those elections. Candidates who were running in 2014 were obviously running within that same context, and that brings into the equation things like candidates not only competing against rivals from other political parties, but also essentially competing against people from within their own parties. And it also created a situation where political parties were really keen to ensure that they had as many representatives as possible in the DPR because of the quota systems. And in Indonesia, political parties have to achieve a certain quota within the national DPR in order to nominate their presidential candidate. So the election was really pivotal for political parties and that opportunity to nominate their presidential candidate. So basically, we really can't separate out these legislative elections from the presidential one that followed. It's interesting, though, this this introduction of the open list system, the pressure to get as many seats as possible, not just to be represented in parliament, but also to be able to nominate for presidential campaigns, means that parties really went all out, didn't they? They recruited all sorts of people to run for them. Can you give us a bit of a picture of the sorts of people who were running for election in this um, particular race? So in the 2014 national legislative elections, you see all kinds of characters being recruited to run for parties. And this is really when celebrity candidates became a real thing in Indonesia. So in 2009, with the introduction of the open party list again, parties started to realise that having celebrity candidates, having candidates who already had what's often referred to as a masa, a group of followers, committed followers who will vote for them no matter what they do. Parties started to realise that having these kinds of candidates could be really beneficial, not just in terms of getting votes, but also in terms of raising profile for the party. So you see a lot of celebrities being recruited by political parties for the 2014 national legislative elections. So it's interesting because none of the candidates that you followed were celebrities. And in fact, they took a very different tack, didn't they? They really pushed their credentials as anti-corruption candidates. And the first one you describe in the book is Ambol, a candidate who is vociferously opposed to money politics. Can you tell us a bit about him and how he engaged with gatekeepers and voters on the campaign trail? Yeah, so Ambo is a really interesting candidate for a number of reasons. And what drew me to him initially was his very strongly stated opposition to money politics and vote buying. He had said in our initial meetings in Jakarta several months before he actually began campaigning in his district that he was committed to not giving people money as an incentive to vote for him. And he actually kind of used language where he portrayed himself as being, you know, quite disgusted by the practice. So he was very strongly against money politics and vote buying. And I thought it would be really interesting to see how this would play out when he actually got into campaign mode in his district. So Ambo's approach, I think, 
was very principled. And I would say that he managed to maintain that throughout the course of his campaign, which is in contrast to some of the other candidates that I look at in the book. He was very lucky, I think. One of the things about Ambo was that his personality and his background and, you know, who he was as a person in terms of his identity really opened a lot of doors for him within his district that might not have been available to other people. But he was also very um, wily, I guess, when it came to dealing with gatekeepers and sort of local power brokers within his district. So he had a network of spies, I guess, you know, friends and family and people who he knew who he'd used to collect information about different power brokers across his district. And he'd use that information to shape his approach to particular people or, you know, even in deciding whether somebody was worth trying to convince or not. So, for example, I remember we went to one particular village to meet with a village head there. And we had a a meeting with this village head who was very polite, but nothing was really said, no commitments were made. And after the meeting, I asked him, you know, how did that meeting go? And he was like, "Eh, you know, that guy's already committed to somebody else. I was just having the meeting with him to show face. And I was like, why would you do that? And he was like, well, it's important to let people know that you've thought of them, that you've considered them. This will be the end of our interaction. I've kind of fulfilled my duty and been polite here. So now I'll go and focus my energies on other people who I actually can convince who might actually, you know, support my campaign. But at other times he was quite combative, wasn't he? You tell a great story about a meeting in a hotel foyer. I'm sure our listeners would be very interested in that one. Yeah, so Ambo was a real character to follow around because he was a very outspoken candidate. He had very strong opinions about things. And yeah, the story that you refer to, um, I do mention it in the book and it always makes me smile and also gives me that feeling of discomfort in my stomach thinking about it because it was so awkward. But yeah, basically we, we had a meeting at quite a fancy hotel in Umbo's district. And in that same hotel, there was a candidate from another party who was hosting a quote unquote workshop for village heads. And, you know, the sort of workshop idea is basically a junket to bring people to a fancy hotel and give them a few nights there and make them feel special and important. But really, it's kind of a form of vote buying, right? Because it's an exchange of goods or services with the hope that these village heads will then go back to their villages and tell people to vote for this particular candidate. So, We were actually in the lobby of the hotel coming out of this meeting in the coffee shop and crossed paths with three of the village heads who were at this hotel as part of the workshop. And they were obviously off duty, so they had the casual clothes on. And and I distinctly remember that they were wearing the fluffy hotel slippers that you get in your room. And Ambo recognised them because, you know, he had been um, the representative for that district previously and stopped them in the hotel lobby in front of everybody and basically was saying, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be selling your votes like this. You're betraying people, you know, really kind of implying that they were betraying democracy. 
and he was quite loud and everybody everybody in the hotel lobby was staring at him as he talked to these village heads in these very terse angry tones and I don't think that they really knew what to do so they sort of mumbled uh, we're heading off now <laughs> they didn't respond but you know there was that moment as they were walking off where everybody was just kind of looking at each other with this terribly awkward silence and you know afterwards I asked Ambo about it and his response was you know people need to be caught out on this behavior and one of the problems in Indonesia is essentially we're too polite when people do something that's wrong we don't say anything and I'm not that person that's not going to say anything so that was a really interesting story from that particular case study. <laughs> Sounds like Ambo and I would get on very well. The second candidate you discuss is Ayu, who's had a very different experience. What do we learn from her story? Ayu's story is very different to Ambo's in that, well, there are a couple of things about her case. Ayu was running in a district in East Java, but she was for all intents and purposes, from Jakarta. She had been raised in Jakarta, had been educated there. She had raised her own family there. So one of the interesting things about Ayu was because of the connections that she had within her political party, she was really given the choice. She was asked, where would you like to run? And she had opted against running for a district in Jakarta and had instead chosen to run in a district in East Java. And her rationale for that was that, you know, that's where her family is from, this Indonesian thing where if you ask somebody where they're from, they'll often tell you where their parents are from or where their ancestors are from rather than, you know, where they actually live. So her family were from East Java and one of the interesting things is I think she felt an affinity with this particular district, but I don't think that the people in the district felt any kind of affinity with her. So one of the initial sort of hurdles for IU, which I don't think she ever really managed to overcome, was just this outsider status that she was constantly trying to combat in her campaign there were definitely instances where she was addressing a crowd and I would be at the back listening to what people were saying and people were very confused by her. Um, her Javanese wasn't what they were used to, so she sounded quite foreign, even though you know she felt like this was her area. So that was one of the first issues for Ayu. Another issue that she had to face was within her party itself. So... Like I mentioned, Ayu had, a, I guess, a privileged position within the national level of her party, but she didn't really have any connections to the party at the district level or the provincial level. And she had assumed that because of her status within the national leadership of this party that she would be warmly welcomed by party cutters and leaders at the local level, but that's not what happened at all. In fact, her sort of being parachuted into this district led to a lot of issues and she didn't really understand the power dynamics at the local level, which really made things difficult for her in terms of getting support from within her own party to the extent that when she was actually physically campaigning, she had to hire members of staff and pay for them out of her own pocket 
because there wasn't really anyone from her own party in the district that was going to help her. So in this sense, she was very much apart from the community, which was a big contrast to Umbo's situation. How did that play into her commitment, her her use of the anti-corruption narrative? Yes, it had a huge impact on Ayu's campaign trajectory, really. Like the other two candidates in the book, one of the reasons why I was interested in her campaign was because, you know, she had this very clear stated ambition at the outset of her campaign that she wouldn't use vote buying as one of her strategies. Now, the outsider status and, you know, finding it very difficult to make connections within her electoral district kind of set Ayu up on this particular path where she was constantly having to reevaluate and reassess how she was going to campaign. And a lot of that was to do with the fact that she was often being asked for money or goods or some kind of promise or commitment as she was going through the campaign. And I think at the beginning of her campaign, she was able to say no to these requests because she was hopeful that she would be able to use her campaign strategies and her rhetoric and leverage her identity in order to get support from people. But as the campaign went on, it became increasingly obvious that she wasn't quite getting the traction that she had hoped for, particularly with the anti-corruption strategy and discourse that she was using. And so I guess there came a point where she just really had to decide whether eschewing money politics and vote buying was going to get her where she wanted to be. And she sort of ended up going down that path, even though she had stated at the outset that that was very much not the direction that she wanted to go in. So the third candidate we meet is Bonto, who had a very different take on the relationship between anti-corruptionism and money politics. How did he reconcile his strident anti-corruptionism with his willingness to splash the cash? He was definitely able to do that, and he was quite adept at self-justification One of the things about Bontod, which is different from the other two candidates, was that he had been in politics for a very long time. So his involvement in the Indonesian National Parliament actually predated 1998. So he had been there since the Suharto era. So he was an old hand when it came to campaigning and politicking. And I think one of the interesting things about the way that he managed to rationalise his anti-corruption identity, and he really did have a very strong anti-corruption identity. He saw himself as an anti-corruption fighter in the Indonesian national legislature, and that was a title that he really gave to himself. He genuinely saw himself in that light. So then seeing him in the campaign in situations where he's giving money to people, where he's spending money in particular ways, To me, as somebody who was observing the campaign, it felt very jarring because it didn't feel like these two things should go together. But in talking to Bontod and asking him to explain why he thought certain things were okay, why it was all right to give people money in certain situations, 
he was very pragmatic about it and he used different justifications at different times. You know, sometimes he would say things like, oh, well, you know, that's Batak culture and people expect something. And if you don't give it to them, then, you know, that's not really following the cultural norms. Other times he would say things like, if you have a rally and you don't give people money, then that's worse than not having the rally at all because people expect something from you and if you want to win, you have to meet their expectations. So he would give different justifications at different times. But I think probably for Bontot, the fact that he had been around for so long and he'd been through the campaign process several times just meant that he was really comfortable with what I felt was quite a juxtaposition. He was very at ease with it and didn't see any problems between reconciling this anti-corruption image that he had set up for himself publicly against the use of money in particular ways to persuade people to vote for him. And, of course, it's this real contrast between the candidates that makes your book so interesting. Having delved into their experiences, you discussed their consequences of their decisions And when this discussion, I was particularly struck when you talked about campaigns being a form of embodiment. Can you talk about the pressure that positioning a campaign as an extension of someone's personal identity places on candidates and how the particular candidates you followed negotiated that pressure? Yeah, I think this question of campaigns as an embodiment is a really interesting one and it kind of comes back to my own aims with this study because what I really wanted to do was tell these personal stories and to give some real colour to what candidates in Indonesia actually go through when they decide to campaign. So this idea of campaigns as embodiment comes from two different observations, I guess. The first one is that a candidate's identity and positionality is intrinsically linked to what they can and can't do in a campaign. So, for example, with the candidates that I followed, you have Ambo, who is this sort of consummate putra diera from his region. You know, he's got really deep kinship ties there. He speaks the local language. People know who he is. No, he's got campaign opportunities available to him that were not there for Ayu because she's perceived as an outsider. She doesn't have the support of her political party. I think gender also came into it a little bit for Ayu as well. So it's this idea that who people are actually shapes what is possible during a campaign. So that's the first idea. The second idea, I think, is through telling these stories, you can really see that the campaign itself is quite an emotional journey and people see the campaign as an extension of themselves and an extension of their ideals and morals. And I think in that case, Ayu's story is particularly interesting because you can see as she goes through the campaign, she becomes more and more despondent and negative and stressed to the extent that in the final days of the campaign, just after the elections are done, she's just exhausted and really cynical about the entire process. 
And I think we really do need to remember that when we're talking about campaigns and elections, there are real people involved here and they have very real emotional responses to what they have to go through. So I think in that sense, the campaign also is an embodiment of of the candidates. I'd like to step back now and discuss some of the more theoretical and methodological concerns of the book. And I'd like to start with how you did the field work. The level of access you had to these candidates was quite extraordinary. How did you convince them to let you shadow them so closely? Yeah, finding these candidates and being able to follow them so closely. I think in terms of how I did it, there was a lot of luck involved, absolutely. Um, And I think having also an opportunity to spend an extended period of time in Indonesia where I was able to work to these candidates' schedules and sort of be ready whenever there was an opportunity was part of it. I think also, I mean, one of the things too about these candidates is that they're not the only people that I interviewed for this project. They just happen to be the people who let me spend the most amount of time with them and have very compelling stories to tell. But there was an element of rapport building at the beginning. So really explaining what my research was about, giving them a sense that it was very non-threatening, that I wasn't there to, you know, expose wrongdoing and report on it or tell anybody about it in that sense, but just there to observe and to try and understand the processes that they go through. And I think too, for me personally, my own positionality actually had a huge role in the access that I was able to get to candidates. So when it came to Bontor, I, I do outline in the book that my mother is Batak and Bontor is also Batak. And he really, I think, was very bemused by me and my <laughs> my lack of knowledge and understanding of Batak culture and, and how, you know, the Batak worldview. So he kind of also saw me being there kind of as an opportunity to educate me about things that I really should already know, given my own heritage. So that was kind of an interesting element to the Bonto story. And there were times where we would be at weddings or, you know, functions and we'd meet somebody from a particular marga and he would turn around to me and say, oh, you can marry this person because their marga matches with yours or things like that. So there was a fair bit of, you know, my own identity that kind of came into building that relationship. It's interesting that insider-outsider positions are very powerful one often in situations like this. Yeah. And I think another interesting part of the fieldwork for me was in in the couple of weeks leading up to the election campaign when I was in East Java with Ayu, my father actually tagged along and he's um, older white gentleman and observing the way that people responded to him versus to me was really quite fascinating because 
with him. They wanted him up on the days when they were doing the rallies and the events and they, they wanted photos with him and everybody wanted to talk to him. Whereas because of, I guess, the way that I look, I wasn't such a focus. So I was really able to kind of mingle with people and wander around and, and not really draw attention to myself and be more of a fly on the wall in certain situations. So I think it, it is also interesting to think about how, you know, as researchers, how our identity and our appearance and our backgrounds kind of shape the access that we have to people. Well, absolutely. And it reminds me so much of when Lenore Lyons and I were doing our work on the Rio Island. And one of the elements of our research was about sex workers and sex work of the islands and sex tourism from Singapore. So we actually went into a travel agent in Singapore and asked what we could do in their islands. And they very firmly pushed us towards the resort zone. Then we got an older white gentleman to ask the same questions in the same agency, and he got very different answers. So I think it's often easy for people to forget about this, but your study really does underline, as you've said, how important all aspects of positionality are, whether it be gender or ethnic background and so on. Yeah, absolutely. This the book focuses on the relationship between three groups of actors, the candidates and their campaign teams, their parties and the voters that they're attempting to woo. The relatively light treatment of political parties might come as a bit of a surprise to some reasons. Can you explain to our listeners why they're so peripheral in your story? I think there are a few reasons for that. So firstly, when I did the initial study, parties were a much bigger part of the story. So it's not that they've been ignored, it's just that in this particular iteration, the stories of the individual candidates have kind of shone through as being the bigger focus of the book. But I guess the broader issue here is that in telling the stories of candidates, it's interesting to see just how little the political party can influence what actually happens at the local level. So the three candidates that I've chosen and, you know, I think it would have been really nice to be able to add the additional colour to the stories by giving their political parties. But of course, there are some ethical considerations around identity. So, so the parties themselves are a little bit obscured in the book. But all three of these candidates were quite active members of their parties, the parties that they represented, and they all had positions at the party headquarters in Jakarta. So they had a very particular relationship to their political parties, but even for them, the way that party discourse is mobilised in those sort of day-to-day interactions with voters, you know, meetings with, with power brokers at the local level, it doesn't really come through there. And I think that's another really interesting part of the puzzle because political parties are such a focus of not just academic research, but also, you know, if you look at the media in Indonesia and, you know, who's being quoted and who's being listened to, political parties have a really strong presence there. But when it comes to actually, you know, going out and soliciting votes and campaigning on the ground, they're kind of absent. And I think that's another really interesting part of the story. Finally, I'd like to ask about the broader implications of your study. What does it add to our understanding of the political system and in particular the prospects for democracy in Indonesia? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? I think one of the 
more depressing insights of the book, I suppose, is that it's clear that running on an anti-corruption platform is not particularly appealing to voters. But more than that, it can be very difficult for candidates who themselves want to run, you know, a so-called clean campaign to stick to that if they don't have all of these other pieces of the identity puzzle in place. And so it's a situation where you really do have to be a perfect candidate in order to win without having to resort to large-scale money politics or vote buying. And finding those kinds of candidates is going to be difficult in any scenario, including in Indonesia. So that's one thing. I think another thing to think about is just how individuals play into the overall quality of democracy in Indonesia and the trajectory of democracy. So a lot of researchers have commented on this idea that the way that people come to power, the way that they get elected through the legislative election and whether they spend large amounts of money in that process or, you know, even take out loans or end up borrowing money from people is going to affect their behavior once they get into the national parliament. And that gives people more motivation to maybe make decisions that are not in keeping with democratic spirit or even, you know, to put it more bluntly, to be corrupt once they get into parliament. So in understanding the ways that people get into power and the kinds of journeys that they have to take to get there, I think that can really help us to understand why people do what they do when they get into parliament and also start a conversation about how we can intervene and what kinds of processes can we start to eventually get to a point where candidates can genuinely run as anti-corruption candidates and win. Thanks for that, Liz. Just before we wrap up, could you tell us a bit about what you're currently working on? Of course. At the moment, I've got a couple of projects in place. I'm not looking at elections anymore, but I'm still really interested in the Indonesian political system and how different stakeholders and how lobbyists kind of feed into decisions that are made, particularly in terms of quite controversial policies. So at the moment, I've got a project looking at the tobacco industry in Indonesia, which is a very complicated issue for a number of reasons. Indonesia has one of the largest proportions of smokers in the world, and this proportion has not significantly decreased for, you know, around the last 20 years, unlike most other countries in the world. So it's really interesting to think about why Indonesia is bucking the trend and and such a unique case, particularly when it comes to the way that they police smoking and the laws that they've got around what people can and can't do. And I've got a second project, which I've embarked on with the support of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, that is on opioid policy in Indonesia. And it's a really wonderful interdisciplinary project working with pharmacists, medical doctors, people with law backgrounds to look at the way that Indonesia regulates opioid use and then looks at how those regulations play out at the local level in the way that health practitioners make decisions about when they will use opioids and when they won't. So 
that's still in the planning stages, but hoping to get to that towards the end of this year. Well, you certainly have plenty to do to keep you busy. Elizabeth Kramer, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss the candidate's dilemma, anti-corruptionism and money politics in Indonesian election campaigns. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you might be interested in hearing me talk to Edward Aspinall and Ward Berenschot about their book, Democracy for Sale, Elections, Clientelism and the State in Indonesia. You can also listen to Nick Cheeseman chat to me and my co-author Terry Carraway about our book, Labour and Politics in Indonesia. There are hundreds of other conversations on other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel too. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again soon for another conversation. 